Hey there, and welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church. This is Pastor Jason Tucker. Happy Lent, everyone. We are in Lent. Uh, We had a great Ash Wednesday worship service last week and uh, worship this last Sunday. As you know, we're in the middle of our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we also have a ton of events and opportunities coming up where you can engage in a deeper way in your faith, and that's really what Lent is about. I know a lot of people like to give things up for Lent, but really I'm a big believer in adding something for Lent, adding a spiritual practice, adding something that you aren't currently doing to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus. And so we have a lot of opportunities coming up. You could go onto our website, TowerHillChurch.org, and you can see all the different opportunities that we have. We have small groups, women's groups, uh, Bible studies, classes. Uh, all sorts of opportunities. We even have new Sunday school opportunities for middle schoolers that we're excited about called XP3. That begins this Sunday, March 12th at 10.30 a.m. We have donuts. We used to call it Donut Dive, and it used to be twice a month. Now it's every single week, and we are so excited to offer this to our teenagers in the brand new worship, uh, excuse me, worship, the brand new youth space which is called The Attic, and uh, it's such a cool space. I can't wait for the kids to get in there and to enjoy it. Anyway, that new Sunday School opportunity happens this week for middle school. Also, I want to let you know about an opportunity that I am offering, and it actually starts this week. I really believe that all of us need somebody to help identify what might our next steps of faith be and how do we figure them out in our relationship with God? And so I'm going to help you to do that. So if you'll join me, I am offering a free webinar this Thursday, March 9th. There's also an encore of the webinar on Monday, March 13th, both at 7 o'clock p.m. And I'm going to take you through steps that you can take in finding out where is God leading me in my life? What does he want Me to be doing in my work, in my play, in my relationships, in my physical and spiritual well-being. What does God want for me? So you need to register for that if you want to participate. Go to our website again, towerhillchurch.org. Scroll down on that homepage, and it'll say Next Steps Webinar RSVP here. And that's how you register. I hope to see you as part of that webinar. And there is also a class that's going to be offered as we unpack each of the five steps of figuring out, discovering God's plan for your life. So I'm really excited about that. I hope that you'll join me for that. Now, without further ado, here comes our next installment of our series, Credo. And it is all about Jesus, the historical Jesus, and what does that mean for me? Hope you enjoy. My mom was a music fanatic. She loved music. She grew up, she studied piano, she studied violin, she studied voice, she did musical theater, she did opera, she did all sorts of musical things. She went to school for music. My mother loved music. She especially loved the music of her generation, music of the 1960s. She was a huge Beatles fan and an even bigger Paul McCartney fan. We got a steady, but she had a real wide ranging taste in music, but we grew up and she always had a record spinning, always, and you know, if you're under 25, a record, 
Actually, those are cool again, so they, they know what those are. But, um, but the idea is, I mean, she had that music going all the time. She loved music. And so perhaps it's no surprise that in 1969, she indeed bought a ticket to Woodstock. Now, my mom, yes, went to Woodstock. You know how I know she went to Woodstock? Because she never let any of us forget it. She would not shut up about Woodstock, ever. We heard her stories thousands of times, so many times that we got so sick. Every time she'd start a word, we'd finish the story for her. Yeah, yeah, mom, we know. My mom was also very naive. She may have been the most naive person to ever go to Woodstock. When she was pregnant with me, she asked the doctor how I was going to come out. So that's my mom. So (laughs) she thought, she had it in her head that Woodstock was going to be just like this picnic. Like this really wild, like she'd sit in a field, maybe enjoy some food. with Her mother packed her, my grandma Serena packed her a picnic basket with fried chicken, potato salad. She had it in her head that this was just going to be this, you know, play some music, we're all going to hang out. So she gets a couple miles away and it's already this mob scene of cars going in. If you ever seen the pictures of Woodstock, just hundreds and hundreds of cars and people walking. And my mother didn't know what to do, especially when some of the hippies were sitting on people's cars for a free ride, right? They didn't want to walk anymore, so they started, and she started shooing them off her car. She was the most non-hippie hippie that went to Woodstock. And really, the whole experience as she describes it, I mean, there was a lot of mud, there were no bathrooms. It was very uncomfortable. There wasn't enough food. And there are a lot of people doing weird things. You know that part. And it really wasn't about the music. (laughs) She heard some of the music, but it was really the experience of Woodstock was etched in her brain forever. And she made sure it was etched in ours. And every time somebody would ever talk about Woodstock in front of her, oh, you better get it right. Because she quickly corrected, no, 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 no. I was there. Don't tell me about the bathrooms. I was there. It wasn't muddy. Yeah, you weren't there. The event of Jesus' death was etched in the disciples' memory forever. It was what none of them expected. It took everybody by surprise, marching into Jerusalem to cheers and laughter. This is going to be a picnic. And it turned into an ugly mob scene where their beloved rabbi lost his life. And all throughout the New Testament, they keep reminding people, no, 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 we were there. We know exactly what happened. We were there. And when somebody would say something that was incorrect, they would stop you and they would say, no, we were there. 2 Peter 1.16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. We saw it. See, here's the thing. Much like 
Woodstock for my mother was about the experience. It wasn't even about the music. Followers of Jesus, what changed their lives and changed the world, weren't at first the teachings of Jesus. At least not at first. It was the cross. They just simply did not know what to do with the cross, and it was etched in their brain forever. And it changed them forever. Today's part of the creed is the heart of the Christian faith. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Don't you think it's kind of strange that in in the most widely used Christian creed, that there's a reference to a non-Christian governor of Rome. It's kind of strange. Pontius Pilate. What is he doing in our Christian creed? How does he get in? Surely there were some better names to include. You see, we are reminded when we read the name of Pontius Pilate, we are reminded of the historical circumstances of the crucifixion of Jesus. It happened in a time and place. John 18, 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. You can't think about the crucifixion of Jesus without thinking about a very specific time, geography, circumstance, context. It is bound inextricably with history. In other words, you can make all sorts of claims about the crucifixion of Jesus, but somebody could call you out and say, no, 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 I was there. It's an event that actually happened in real time, in real history. And the New Testament especially takes great care to tell you it was under this person's reign. It was in this place. It was even at the Passover. It's very, very specific. And what do we know about Pilate? So he goes before Pilate. And depending on which gospel you read, uh, you get a little more of the story. But Pilate was this governor and his whole job was to try to keep the Jewish people from going crazy. He just, he wanted control. And the way that it worked was the the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, would uh, basically bring criminals to the governor because their law said that they couldn't use the death penalty. They couldn't couldn't carry out a death penalty. This was was a Roman rule. They couldn't carry out the death penalty. And so they would bring cases that they thought needed the death penalty to the Romans. And so they brought Jesus to the governor, to Pilate. And of course, Pilate, he interrogates Jesus and he says he finds no fault with him. There's this tradition where they let one prisoner go and they, and they uh, kill or imprison the other one. And this whole story unfolds. And then we get Pilate, you know, washing his hands. He says some wonderful lines that, you know, what is truth? And these really uh, great lines. But But the bottom line is, he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. He was simply the guy who was in charge at that time. And it was under his rule that the orders were given for Jesus to be crucified. 
And so when we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, we say it was a historical event. It was a historical fact that this man, Jesus, was crucified in a particular time and place. This isn't just a legend or an idea that was written later. This was central to what followers of Jesus believed. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. This part of the creed doesn't really talk about uh, the theological reasons for any of that. It just states the facts. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And part of the reason is because the facts themselves were in dispute in the second century. This is why they had to write down the Apostles' Creed. It's because people were saying, oh, well, maybe he didn't really die on the cross. It just looked like he died. And yet you read the Gospels. You read all about what happened to Jesus. And you know that he died. And they went to lengths to make sure that he was dead. That part where they pierce his side is believed that they are piercing uh, the heart and the pericardium, that sack of water that protects the heart. When it says that blood and water flowed, it, that's, he was stabbed there to make sure that his heart was no longer beating, that he was indeed dead. John 19, beginning of verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Even just thinking about that, it was very specific. The events that happened. I I would think that if you were around the crucifixion and you heard all the gospels attesting to the fact that it said king of the Jews on it and it didn't say that, you would have put your hand up and said, no, 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 I was there. It didn't say that. Right? It's very specific. Let's jump to Matthew uh, 27, verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli. Lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up. His spirit. Jump back to John 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, 
They laid Jesus there. He was crucified. He died. And he was buried. The historical facts. The facts that anybody who was there can say, I was there. And they can dispute them. Intertwined in history. But see, then the next part of the creed says something theological about what happened. The next part of the creed makes the historical facts of the crucifixion, death, and burial meaningful to me here and now. And that is, he descended into hell. Whenever we say that part of the creed, I hope that it's very uncomfortable that it makes us very uneasy to say those words that Jesus descended into hell. He who knew no sin made sin for us, descended into hell. Why did he have to do that? Why did Jesus have to descend into hell? This, interestingly, this part of the creed uh, was a late addition to the Apostles' Creed, which makes sense. Uh, it's a theological reflection that took time to think out, right? So you would think it would be added a little later. The crucified, died, and buried part uh, was pretty self-explanatory. But why? And that's the theolog- theological part. He descended into hell. Why did he have to do that? Have you ever seen the movie National Treasure? I love that. It's a really fun movie, National Treasure. Anyway, uh, there's a, a part in the movie where uh, the two characters are uh, sitting, sitting down and the one, the FBI agent and our uh, hero are talking about the fact that he had to steal the Declaration of Independence. And even though everything worked out in the end, he says, Ben, somebody's got to go to jail. You stole the... De- the Declaration of Independence got stolen. Somebody's going to jail. I know it all worked out, but the law has been broken. Somebody's got to go to jail, Ben. God's law had been broken. Sin had been committed by the human race. Somebody had to go to jail. Somebody had to pay the price of what was owed. And that is why Jesus did it. He did it so that we won't have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. That brings up all sorts of interesting theological and philosophical questions. I once heard somebody say that the most evil man in history was Jesus Christ as he died on the cross. I don't know if I'm going to go around saying that, but, but what they mean is, if you think of the most evil person in history, I mean, it, you, the Hitlers of history and all of them, if you think about it, Jesus was bearing the sin of all of them and all of us all at the same time. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin because he had to pay for it all. I know, that one will keep you up at night. 
But what did that look like? What did his descent into hell look like? How did that transaction take place? In that, all we can do is speculate. Was it a lake of fire? Was it Satan and his demons? Was it something like, you know, we we get in our head, Dante's Inferno? Um, You know, is it some kind of like he descended these layers of hell? And this is all speculation, which is why I really like John Calvin's take on this issue. John Calvin believed, he says, what is hell? And he looked to this place where Jesus is hanging on the cross. Where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, hell, whatever it looks like, is God forsakenness. Hell is the eternal absence of God. That there is nothing worse whether it's fire, whether it's blackness, whether whatever it is, just nothingness. It is the state of perpetual God-forsakenness. And it was this hell that Jesus experienced as he breathed his last. Jesus paid the price of sin. And this is so important. Because this is how it makes sense to my life. If I stop at he was crucified, died, and buried, that's just a historical fact. That has nothing to do with my life other than I might care that that happened to him. But the fact that he descended into hell makes it meaningful for me. Because he was crucified, died, and buried for me, for my sins in the here and now. And that if I believe in him, if I put my faith in him, then I can be forgiven now. That Jesus and the crucifixion is not trapped 2,000 years ago in history somewhere. It's historical, but it's not trapped in history. It is made alive right here and right now. He suffered and died and was buried, and that did something for me. And it doesn't end there. Listen to this language of Acts 1.8. As Jesus is talking uh, to his disciples, but also talking to us, his future disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The event of the cross isn't trapped in history. When you experience Jesus here and now and you have a relationship with him, what happens is, is you become an eyewitness. Just like those eyewitnesses that said, no, 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 I was there. You, in your heart, you can say, I was there. Here's what I mean. Somebody says, oh, you know, I had this horrible thing happen in my life. God's not good. You say, yes, he is good. I am an eyewitness to his goodness because of what he did for me on the cross. Oh, why does God let all these bad things happen? Why does God let tragedy happen? What is God up to? What is God doing? I don't trust God. God doesn't care. Say, no, no, no. I was there. I'm an eyewitness to the goodness and the glory and the love And the forgiveness of God in my life. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell for me. We are witnesses.
And I hope that that's etched in our brains forever. And that with our children and our children's children, we would make sure it is etched in theirs. When Jesus went to the cross and died, it was an event that left a mark. Has it left its mark on you?